They give us shade, keep temperatures down, sequester carbon, provide climbing opportunities for kids, and habitat for birds, bees, and other animals. And they make our neighborhoods look nice. Trees are one of nature's most amazing creations, and one we often take for granted. Given the opportunity, trees can play a critical role in our effort to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. They're part of nature's survival kit. This is how we should be thinking about trees now. This is why cutting down trees has to be done only in real emergencies. And this is Green Street. Hello again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, researchers, medical professionals, public health experts, authors, thought leaders, and others all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is going on in the environment all around you and how you and your family can live a safer, healthier, and more responsible life in this crazy mixed up world. Today on Green Street, we're going to be talking about trees and how they fit into nature's plan to help us weather the effects of climate change, but it's not a simple story. Trees and the politics of trees are more complicated than you might think. We'll be joined by Dr. Andy Ryman, Assistant Professor in the Advanced Science Research Center of Hunter College, so stay tuned for that. But first, here's Patty with the Environmental News of the Week. So what happened this week? Well, some of it's this week and some of it is just recent news that is important for us to discuss. Okay. Uh, but this is very recent over the past week that uh, Environmental Health News published. The title is Air Pollution Can Raise Risk of COVID-19 Death 51%. Wow. People who live in areas that come with long-term exposure to high levels of air pollution face a 51% higher chance of dying from COVID-19. And thousands of lives could have been saved during the pandemic if air quality standards were met, a new public health research study has found. The study, which focused on California residents, is the latest of several exploring the impacts of air pollution on the incidence and severity of COVID-19 infections. And the research adds to a growing body of global research highlighting the importance of reducing air pollution for overall health. The researchers determined that 9% or at least 4,250 COVID deaths could have been prevented if California met national air quality standards. The most vulnerable people in terms of air pollution exposure were likely to be Latinos and those living in low-income areas, the researchers found. People of color live in communities that have some of the worst air pollution and also have greater chances of getting sick and even greater chances of dying from COVID, the report said. California's recent move to prohibit the sale of new gasoline-powered cars by 2035 should help reduce air pollution but will not solve the problem. The new study concludes with a warning, quote, with the growing evidence from studies worldwide that suggest there is additional risk of COVID-19 morbidity and mortality associated with air pollution, reducing concentrations of air contaminants is now even more critical to protecting public health, end quote. 51% is a huge number. Yeah. I mean, 50, reducing the risk by 51% is something that 
is very significant. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about air pollution in low-income areas, uh, people who live in these underserved communities, especially within cities that have high air pollution, being at risk of many, many different illnesses, mostly respiratory-related illnesses. But COVID, of course, has a huge respiratory component to mm -hmm. it. So this is not surprising in any way. And it's not just California. I think they're probably talking about L.A. here because L.A. has really, really bad air pollution. Yeah. But I mean, places like Long Island uh, and Westchester County, there are what they consider non-attainment areas by the EPA. They do not meet the basic air quality standards that were developed by the EPA. And of course, Upper Manhattan and the Bronx are oh, yeah. really just... Of course. Know. Well, those are, yes, those are your undisturbed yeah. you know, areas. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So the next one is really interesting. This is from The Guardian, and the title is Nighttime Heat is Killing Crops. Scientists are rushing to find resilient plants. Hmm. While the climate crisis is pushing daytime temperatures to record highs, those at night are rising significantly faster. This is a big problem for humans and animals who struggle to cool their bodies at night. But it's also a crisis for plants, which have fewer defense mechanisms available at night, posing a huge threat to the global food system. Every one degree rise in nighttime temperatures could cause wheat yields to drop by 6% and rice yields by as much as 10%. Hotter nights can also affect quality, making the rice chalky and less palatable and can even change its nutritional composition. A team at Arkansas State University Biosciences Institute are part of a race to figure out how to create varieties of rice, the main food source for billions of people and a vital crop for farmers around the world, that can withstand the impacts of a fast-changing climate. The rise in nighttime temperatures can have a more significant impact on crops that don't have as many defense mechanisms at night. In the daytime, some plants can use their stomata, the small pores on the leaf surface, to guard against the heat but most of these are closed at night. Plants also have nowhere to hide from nighttime heat, unlike during the day when shade from crop canopies will allow parts of a plant to escape the heat. Researchers are analyzing the genes of plants to determine how to develop new genetically modified varieties that can withstand rising nighttime temperatures. Wow, this is a whole new conversation that's related to climate change. And that is that plants, food crops, are going to dwindle because of nighttime temperatures. Rice is such a staple, as they say, for billions of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, especially in areas where it's likely to be the hottest. That's exactly right. So we kind of got a compound problem here. And, you know, maybe they can fix it with genetic engineering, but maybe they can't. I mean, once you start tinkering with genes... You know, you may have an That's unexpected right. result. Well, as we know, genetic engineering is not everything that the industry mm. says it is. I yeah. mean, there are real problems with genetically modified foods. Sure. And people all over the world are avoiding them like the plague. There's all kinds of opportunities for the food industry to try to influence regulators. And what they're doing now is trying to figure out a label that doesn't say this food has been genetically engineered or this plant or whatever. They're using all kinds of, uh, of different terminology so that the public won't really understand that it's genetically engineered. 
crazy. Yep. Okay. What else you got? Okay, and the last this one is... is You're going to read the cell tower yeah. that fell on the kids? Yeah, yeah. So this last one is not current news as of just this past week, but it's really important, and we didn't cover it when it actually happened. This happened in July. It's actually published in Wireless Estimator, and the title is Cell Tower Collapse Kills Seven Children Outside School mm. in Jakarta. Police say at least 10 people, including seven children, were killed on the outskirts of Jakarta, Indonesia, after a truck crashed into a telecommunications tower near a bus stop and toppled the structure in a busy area where schoolchildren were on the street during a morning recess. The children's ages range from 7 to 11 years old. Police state that an additional 20 people were injured, many of them children. The structure, which was near an elementary school, was not within the school's compound. Images from the scene showed the communications tower had fallen across the road outside the school's gates and crashed into the bus stop on the sidewalk. The truck driver survived the crash and is now in police custody. Police have not yet determined the cause of the crash, but early signs suggest that the truck experienced brake failure. Okay, so this is a really important article because it allows us to talk about things that are not related to the radiation being emitted from these towers, but structural things that have to actually do with the towers themselves. Okay, so let's just talk about this for a second. The municipal authorities who are charged with approving applications for wireless antennas are always looking to see if they can be co-located on a tower with something else, right? You you, you don't want to have a separate pole for, for each, each provider, antenna. right? So co-location is what they call it. So company A comes, they put their antenna on. Company B comes along, they're going to put their antenna on the same pole. Now, not all these poles are created for that purpose. A lot of times you're talking about a, a telephone pole, essentially, that's been put up there to support wires. Now you're going to start hanging these heavy antennas on. And their power supply. And their power supply. So you got antennas, power supply. Sometimes you have fans because they get hot and they catch on fire. Uh, and then you've got an increasing weather patterns where we have strong winds coming along. We have right. tornadoes in places we've never had tornadoes before. Right. So you're magnifying the danger here by allowing or encouraging companies to co-locate their antennas where other antennas are located. And, you know, nobody's really In other really words, increasing the, the weight on the, on the structure. Mm -hmm. And like you said... You know, they're sometimes putting them on telephone poles, on existing lighting poles, as well as building independent structures or brand new structures for these antennas. Yeah. Anyway, there is also an opportunity to site these towers in places where if something like this occurred, they would not cause this kind of damage, especially in a very vulnerable place like right next door to a school. Yeah. So some of the other problems, and you mentioned it, were that you know these antennas can catch on fire. And we've talked about that before as far as California's wildfires. There have been reports that some of these towers have actually gone down and, and ignited dried grass around some of these well, they big, get very hot, these, these antennas, big fires. And you can't put them out with water. So if the Well, explain that because yeah, that's so, really interesting. Well, if, if an antenna catches fire, you can't spray it with water. It's an immediate electrocution hazard. 
Right. Because it's an electrical thing. So you got to just let it burn itself out, which can take a while. Or wait for the company to turn off the power. Which can also take a while. Turning yeah. off the power is not, you know, it's not like every pole wow. has a switch on So you on sit it. there and you watch it burn. You sit there and you, you watch it burn. Because you know that if you try to put the fire out, you could be electrocuted. The fire okay. trucks show up. Right. The guys are out there with all their stuff. And they're standing there watching the fire burn because right. there's nothing right. they can do. And the other thing, and this is not really a hazard so much directly at the pole, but what's happening is that they put up these monopoles that look like trees, right? And what are they doing? But they're actually putting tons and tons of polyethylene or some other plastic, which, you know, looks like a tree, right? They make leaves or they make little pine needles or whatever it is. And because they're literally out there in the open, in the elements all the time, they begin to degrade. They degrade from sunlight, they degrade from wind, they degrade from just age, right? Sure. They age. Yeah. And so all these little plastic pieces fall off the poles eventually. And so then you have all these little microplastics that get washed with rainwater into maybe surface, surface waters, which may be public water supplies. So you're adding to this pollution of microplastics or nanoplastics by having these cell towers that look like trees. All kinds of problems related to cell towers. Better if we didn't have them. Yeah, this or, one this one that we yeah. that we spoke about first was a, a, a yeah, unbelievable a tragedy. tragedy. Sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Among other things that Patty and I do, our environmental organization has created a number of programs and projects to address the issues of environmental health, climate change, and sustainability. About a decade ago, we created a program called How Green Is My Town on the web at howgreenismytown.org. And as part of the program, we developed a number of environmental posters for advocates to use in their local government debates. One of those posters featured a picture of this gigantic, several hundred years old tree with its limbs outstretched and its tremendous canopy shading the ground below. And the headline was, Survival Tool. It was a very popular poster. I'll put it up on the show page at GreenStreetRadio.com. Today on Green Street, we're delighted to welcome someone who has spent his professional career learning about trees and imparting that knowledge to others. Dr. Andrew Reinman is assistant professor in the Advanced Science Research Center of Hunter College. Patty and I caught up with Andy Reinman last week to talk about trees, and we started, as we often do on Green Street, by asking what sparked his interest in trees. Here's our interview with Dr. Andy Reinman. When I went to college, I planned to become a physical therapist. And my first semester on a whim, I decided to take an environmental studies course. And this for me was the first time that I guess my eyes were open to all the different environmental and social problems that existed in the world. And I was just like kind of shocked. And um, and a lot of the discussion and lab sections for this course, we got to wander around our beautiful 400 acre nature preserve that we had on campus. And it was kind of through those experiences that I learned that kind of, well, no two trees are the same. And there's actually different species and they do different things and they can provide an indication of all these different things that are happening in the environment and the ecosystem that they're a part of. And I guess that started my sort of endless fascination 
um, with trees. And then through that course and other courses that I took in college that also involved us spending time outside, walking around the nature preserve and other natural areas nearby, I grew to learn that someone could like pursue a career studying nature, that that was actually an option. <laughs> and, and for me, that was like, a no, a no brainer. And that yeah. uh, very quickly, I pulled a complete sort of like right turn in my trajectory, left the idea of becoming a physical therapist and decided I wanted to do something related to ecology. Cool. That's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. So now I try and do that as a professor, get my students out of the classroom as much as possible and hope that through those kind of outdoor experiences, learning about nature that way that um, maybe even a small percentage of them, it has a similar impact. You know, while we're while we're just talking about this, talk about how we're so disconnected from nature and how this has had an impact, really. Like, so I think for me, probably the thing that highlights that the most is when we talk about nature, we're implicitly always referring to things aside from humans, right? And and that sort of direction of the conversation necessarily is separating humans from nature, right? And we don't so much view us as part of the natural world, but as something different from the natural world. And I think it's very quick for us to forget that we came from the same place that trees and every other biological organism on the planet has ultimately come from. And the same drivers of evolution that allowed for us to exist allowed for everything else to exist. And there isn't this clear, solid break that biologically separates us from everything else. And and I'm guilty of that same thing too. When I'm teaching my classes and we're talking about like natural ecosystems, I am also thinking like in the absence of humans. And I, th I think for a long time, we've just kind of approached the world in this sort of dichotomous way where there's humans and then there's kind of everything else. And I think increasingly we rely on technology for all sorts of things. We can learn about nature by watching a YouTube video. We can experience the sounds of nature by listening to it on our, on our phones. And I guess I worry that, that it means that people will go through less effort to seek these things out in real life. And for me, and you know, everybody's relationship here is probably different, but for me, I kind of felt like prior to my 18 or 19 year old self, I was kind of like bouncing around, trying different things, not feeling like I fit or like I couldn't find like a hobby or the thing that felt like home to me. And then all of a sudden, I get thrown into these classes where I'm allowed to just like explore nature. And very quickly for me, that became not just like a place to learn, but from maybe more of like a mental health perspective, like a place where I can find calm and relax and in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And 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 I suspect that others are are perhaps being deprived from that as 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 well. And um you know, in, in an urban context, when we talk about the value of urban green spaces, the first things that people kick around are carbon sequestration, it cools off our environment. But increasingly so, what we also try to get to is the reminder of how important these places are for just our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think the pandemic really highlighted this, right? Like the first year of the pandemic, when everything was closed, where did everybody go to? Everyone went to hiking trails and they became overrun with people, which maybe in some ways was a good thing. Maybe it provided new people with a, a new hobby, a new perspective on the world that they didn't have beforehand. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's so interesting that you talk about, about how important it is to actually be out there in nature. I've always said that if children don't experience nature, then they would never want to protect it because they don't understand why it needs to be protected. Let's move it on to trees. So in your position as a professor and also as a person who is very involved in trees as being a critical piece of dealing with our climate crisis, just tell us how this has all evolved for you. A while ago, I kind of felt like I was drawn to this field just because out of a sheer interest in just learning how things work. And as I've learned more over time, I find myself feeling like, gosh, in some ways, I wish it were 200 years ago and I have the luxury of studying science and nature just for the sake of learning. Um, but now I kind of feel like maybe perhaps we don't have that luxury anymore. We need to think about one of the many important roles of science and scientists is to kind of understand the impacts of human activities on the natural world and also think about how can we use ecosystems, different aspects of the natural world as, as maybe solutions to some of these problems. So I guess that that kind of influences a lot of the research that I do and influences the types of courses I, I choose to teach. And I think it influences a lot of the questions and interests that our students have and the things that they hope to get out of the programs that they pursue. I teach at, at, at Hunter College and all of our students are very much like they want to learn and they want to figure out like how to solve problems, right? Sure. Um, and so since I've moved down to New York City, um, I still have a lot of my research that, you know, looks at forest ecosystems in, in rural places, but now we've sort of broadened what we do to kind of expand this continuum from these rural, less touched places to dense urban cores like New York City, this sort of urban to rural con continuum that are sort of often defined as like these human dominated landscapes, right? So these are dense urban areas, suburban areas, agricultural areas, and then the end member would be maybe a place like the Adirondack Mountains, right? Where mm -hmm. we have yeah. like actual still wilderness still. And moving down to New York, I've, I've had the great opportunity to work with a lot of other people, both on the science front and then also from a policy perspective to think about how to make New York, how to make other municipalities in our area kind of like more sustainable, more climate resilient and things along those lines. And, and I guess that shaped my, my work a bit. And I guess in, in that realm where this has pushed my work in a completely new direction from what I had worked on prior to coming down to New York is thinking about this idea of like canopy cover outside of forested areas in cities in our communities and the role that they play in helping to cool things off and maybe mitigate some of the impacts of climate change. And, and I guess through that work and working closely with different municipalities, with different practitioners and with just residents of these communities, I guess kind of what, what I found is people's first inclination when they think about trees in their communities, aha, they store carbon this is the way that we can kind of offset our emissions, burning fossil fuels, sure. things along those lines. But what, what I try to point out is really like in the places that we live, perhaps the biggest benefit of trees is their role in cooling things off. Um, and that has a variety of effects, lowers temperature, so it makes things a little bit more comfortable. And at the same time, by lowering temperature, shading our homes, things like that, it means we don't have to use air conditioning as much. Mm -hmm. And given that most of our electricity is from some sort of fossil fuel based source, that's also reducing carbon emissions. And so 
in our communities, the place where we probably have the most control of canopy cover in these kind of human dominated areas, I, I think it's probably more the role of trees in cooling off the landscape rather than just the carbon they're sequestering alone that we can argue is maybe one of the biggest values of, of trees from a climate perspective. So how is New York City doing compared to other similar cities? Where are we on the, the grade scale? Are we getting an A? Are we getting a C? Or are we failing? Well, I mean, so as as a New Yorker, um, I would say like there is no comparable city to New York, right? That's what everyone would say, right? Like New, New York is kind of it's kind of its answer. kind of it's kind of its own beast, and you know, so like we can say that culturally, but I think also from a biophysical perspective, that's quite true as well. Right? It's considerably denser than any other place in North America. It's more expansive than any other urban place in North America. And as far as cities go, it's also quite old, right? And so yeah. we think about compared to Western cities that developed around a car, for example, the infrastructure in New York is quite different, right? Where like New York is one of the few cities where owning a car is more of a of a hardship than it sure. is something that yeah. like that that yeah. that is a convenience, right? Yeah. And um and and the dense nature of New York City also means that well there aren't a whole lot of trees. New York City has about twenty percent canopy cover. Um, you can compare that to other cities, maybe like Atlanta, that has over fifty percent canopy cover. I mean, it's not quite a fair comparison because just the density of people in New York is far higher than than any other city. So I, I don't know that it's fair to grade New York based on how many trees it has or how much canopy cover it has compared to other cities. But New York is sort of a, a pioneer in this idea of greening a city, right? So. You know, you have decades or centuries of planning, policy making, development in place that brings cities to where they are today. And then the question is like, well, not necessarily who's the best off now, but who's taken sort of the most innovative approaches to improving that moving moving forward. Yeah, and in, so my, probably, in, in my defense, I'll say that's kind of what I meant is how are we doing now in terms of our utilization and our treatment of trees to address some of the things that that trees can do for us and protecting both protecting them and planting them. Yeah. So, um, so New York City had the Million Trees Project, which probably a lot of folks are familiar with. And they initially planned over the course of 10 years to plant a million trees, and they did it in eight years. It's a rare example of a public works project that finishes ahead of schedule. Um, and so a million trees, like that's, that's not um, a trivial number of trees. I think that that's yeah. like maybe... 10%, 20% of the total number of trees that were in New York prior prior to that. Um, and what's kind of cool is now here we are uh, 12, 14 years after they started that project. And with satellite imagery, you can actually see New York City having gotten greener over that period of time. And that's after um, a several decades decline in how green the city sort of looks from space. So that, that policy alone, that project alone, not only did it change a trajectory that we were on, but it actually like we were on this downward trajectory and then it stopped it. And then now we're on this sort of upward trajectory in, in greenness. And you have all of these other cities 
across the U.S. and other um, other countries globally that are sort of following in our footsteps and have put forth really amb- ambitious tree planting programs of their own. And I think New York City has plans to try and do something of like another million trees project moving moving forward. I think there was a New York Times article about that. Mm, cool. So I just want to remind our audience that that million tree effort was part of the Bloomberg administration. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Mayor Bloomberg was the okay. one who started that. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes a while to build a canopy. You're you're putting in trees with a pretty small diameter, right? And it, right. it takes a while for them to really grow so that they can deliver shade and cool down streets and communities and provide that initial thing which you talked about, which is to capture carbon and be a contributor to uh, addressing the climate crisis. So I just want to ask you a little bit about the difference between wealthy communities in not just New York City, but other cities too, and communities that have less money, you know, the, the underserved communities, so to speak. And why can't we get trees in those underserved communities? Because I saw a map and it was like, here's where the wealthy people live. And then here's where the poor people live. And they have trees, but these people don't. Are you working yeah. on that? I mean, that's a that's a, a super difficult problem that takes more than one person to address. Um, first, like, you know, kind of like to your point, like we plant little trees. That's sort of like an investment and, and like, we don't expect our child, once they come out of the womb to be taking care of us in retirement, it takes a while before they can get to that point, right? And so our trees, we plant them when they're small, but as they mature, then, then they will start to take care of us. So anything that we do now, we're not going to see the impacts of it overnight, whether we're planting trees in wealthy communities or poorer communities, it will take time for the benefits of that to, to materialize. Um, we have this long history of having a discrepancy in how sort of like green our communities are based on racial demographics and socioeconomics. A lot of that is tied to a history of of redlining um, policy whereby neighborhoods were given a different grade um, by the Homeowners Loan Corporation decades ago. And oftentimes lower income minority um, dominated communities were given the lowest grade and that had resulted in banks not investing in those communities. And, and part of what went along with that is not doing these beautification projects like planting trees. And even though that policy is not in place anymore and hasn't been for, for decades, the legacies of that are very much still with us. And in fact, if you look at cities across the country and you took out those old redlining maps, sadly, those red line maps still show boundaries of where you have a lot of tree canopy cover and where you have lower tree canopy cover and where you have the hottest part of a community and where you have the coolest part of of a community. Um, And so first off, there's legacy of arguably um, racist policies that, that are to blame for that. Fixing that is also not easy. In places like New York, oftentimes things like greening can be viewed as another pathway to gentrification. And in New York, where housing is already really expensive and people are struggling to be able to afford their their rent, there's a lot of concerns in a lot of communities about cost of housing, rent and things going up. And and there's a perception that maybe right in some cases that if you come in and start planting a lot of trees, now all of a sudden it's going to make the place more desirable for higher income people to want to move there. And that's going to push those people out. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think something that the environmental community has struggled with for a while is we've often liked to go into communities, maybe with good intentions and say, you should do X, Y, and Z. And really, if we want to take a, a fair and holistic approach to improving this, it needs to be initiatives that come from within the communities themselves rather than people outside coming in and telling them what what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are there are initiatives sort of like grassroots types of initiatives where you have a wide diversity of communities pushing for things like increases in canopy cover, but it becomes a really complicated issue again based on uh, legacies of racist politics and and also just current issues that we have inequities like how do you justify planting trees in a community when people may not have just like basic access to food or health care or educational resources and so an environmentalist may say oh you should do this because it's going to improve x y and z but that is maybe a little bit of a myopic approach and and you really need to take into account the broader needs of a community and really what they want and what's in their interest wow so you were not kidding when you said this is very complicated i had never never thought about making a community greener and the cost of living in an apartment where it could go up as you improve the outdoor environment. I Mm. mean, that's like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's examples, I think, in Milwaukee and some neighborhoods there they found once they planted trees, and this was like very much a community-driven initiative that the community started to care more for aesthetics. Um, drug dealers weren't occupying certain denuded parks like they had in in the past. And so there, there's evidence that that there's benefits of this, but there's also, you know, potentially evidence that greening can do things like like increase cost of, of living. And, and so there's there's some places where you can find benefits of doing this. There's some places where um, the data don't always bear out those those benefits from from a, a community spec perspective, and it's it's a tricky thing to to tackle. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. So, Andy, do you sense that the public at large is beginning to appreciate the value of trees and understand what trees do for us? Have you seen? I mean, it seems to me from from where I sit that I sense a a bit of um, more understanding over the past decade, probably because of climate change and because everybody knows, right? Every kid knows that trees do a good thing for us regarding climate change as far as carbon sequestration. Do you sense that in the broader in the broader community? And is there more support for what you're doing? I, I do. And I also think there's cases where where trees can be like a little bit of a, of a third rail in community. So I think by far the thing that people contact me for to talk about the most is trees in our communities. Like many times a year, I'll give some presentation to some municipality or state entity or something along those lines to talk about the benefits of trees, not to scientists, but to the people that can actually like do something with with that information. And, And so that suggests to me that there is very much a strong and growing interest in learning more about what our trees can do, but also wanting to get past just the simple like knowledge phase and to the, okay, we have this information now, what can we tangibly do with it to right. to have a, a, a positive effect? 
There's also a little bit more of a contentious side where I think there's a lot of people in communities that as uh, the frequency of severe weather events increases and they see trees come down, they view having trees around as as a potential liability. Um, I know that where I live, it seems like every time there's a big storm and one tree comes down, the next day Con Ed is coming through with contractors cutting down all these other trees in the neighborhood because they might fall down on, on power lines and people don't want their electricity interrupted. They don't want a tree falling down and crushing their car or their house or, or uh, potentially being a risk to their own safety, which, which is understandable. Sure. Um, but I think it's put us in this place where, where I think the public generally is maybe much more attuned to the potential negative aspects or risks of trees than they are to all of the benefits. And I think the image of a tree falling down and taking out a power line or taking out a car is very dramatic. The pictures of a tree there providing shade and cooling things off and lowering <laughs> your electric bill is not quite as 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 exciting yeah. and, and impactful. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you have these like very dramatic impacts, you know, up against these uh, more subtle impacts. And, and I think maybe through education and taking approaches that are a little bit more creative with how we plant trees in our communities can, can hopefully get us to a place where we can minimize the hazards and maximize all of the benefits that we want from trees. So I get what you're saying about street trees and the potential for damage to power lines and cars and you know coming through windows and whatever and i totally get that but there's another thing too and that is that certain trees are better for street trees because they don't get big like that and but but they're less value right the bigger the tree you know like like an oak tree is is a you know incredibly valuable tree from a from a environmental perspective as opposed to a red bud right which looks nice and but it doesn't grow very big so how do you how do you balance all of this stuff yeah so um i get pretty much every time i give um presentations on this someone or a bunch of people ask me well what tree should i plant and and i always respond with well what's your objective what do you want to get from that tree and where is it going to go if you have a lot of space then something like an oak or a tulip tree or something like that could be a really good option, right? They can get to be large, they'll live a long time, they can sequester a lot of carbon. Oaks might be particularly good at, at cooling things off in the summer, but they're not suitable for every location, right? And so if you're thinking about planting something maybe right next to a home or near a power line or something like that, an oak is probably not your best option because in 50, 60 years, it's going to be at a size where people are going to start thinking about, oh, we need to cut this thing down. And what, what you want is not like a tree or no tree, but you want like the right tree. So even though maybe a flowering dogwood or a redbud isn't going to have quite the same cooling potential or carbon sequestration potential as an oak tree, there's places where we can put those that we can't really put an oak tree. And I would argue that a flowering dogwood or a red bud is better than no tree in a, in a particular lo location. And at the end of the day, cooling things off, we do that by increasing canopy cover. And if you have a bunch of trees that are maybe not super tall, but they're transpiring, they're moving water from the soil out through their leaves and that's evaporating, then it doesn't matter a whole lot how, how tall the trees are. You just want that leaf area, that canopy area in place to help to help cool things off. And so 
in a backyard, in a, an area, you know, not too far from a ball field that's not being used for anything. Those are great places to plant our big trees that, that grow fast. Right around the places where we live, there's maybe other trees that, that would be more appropriate. One of the things that we did, Andy, recently in our community was we adopted a new tree policy. And one of the things that we asked for in that tree policy was no net loss of tree canopy. That was kind of the, the overriding thing. Whatever you do in this town, you can't reduce the overall tree canopy. Is that a good idea? So the town that I live in, um, we're working on a tree ordinance as well. And I just had a meeting this morning and the question that I posed was well, like, well, what's the objective? Are we just trying to reduce the number of trees that get lost or are we trying to reduce the uh, decline in, in canopy cover? And so I think trying to stabilize canopy cover in a community makes sense. And at the same time, it's probably impossible, right? Um, even if you were to stop all development, you know, trees come down and it's the big trees that come down and it's the small trees that we plant, right? We can't plant a hundred foot tall, three foot diameter oak tree. We're going to plant a two inch diameter, you know, six or seven foot tall oak right. tree. Um, and so I, I think we need to think about this the changing canopy over like some time horizon, right? So we want our plantings to be at the point where maybe over, I don't know, a 20 year, 25 year time horizon that that we can stabilize canopy loss and maybe even pivot it to, to an increase in canopy cover. Um, but I think that's the biggest struggle with trying to stop declines in canopy cover is that it's almost always the big trees that we lose and necessarily it's the small trees that that we plant. I was trying to figure out a way to 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 de-incentivize people from taking down trees that don't need to be taken down. We had a terrible experience at our office not long ago where the tree crew showed up and cut down a perfectly good oak tree because they mistakenly the, the they had the wrong address. Tree we were supposed to take apart was across the street, which was 30-year-old oak. And I came up there and I said, What are you doing? I said, you're a tree guy. You can see that this is a beautiful, healthy specimen. No, we have a we have an order to take this down because it's a you know it's a nuisance. I'm like, what nuisance? Actually, it was the tree across the street that was dead. They just had the wrong address, and you uh, would think that. Just awful. It was a nightmare. Okay, yeah, it was really written was. up in the paper and all all kinds of stuff. But anyway. Andy, you've talked about trees being like the sweat glands of the earth. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, so so for me, that, like that's how I often think about trees in a way that like makes sense in my mind, right? They're like our sweat glands of the earth. They they move large volumes of water from the soil up to the atmosphere. And it's it's that process of evaporating water, converting it from liquid to water vapor that actually consumes heat and cools off the air around it. So with us, when we're sweating on a hot day, like we've done a lot of this summer, and a breeze comes across and you feel that cooling feeling on your arm, that cooling feeling is just the evaporation of the water on, on your arm. And so at a, at a macro scale, we can think of trees as like these little sweat glands across our landscape that are moving water from the soil to the atmosphere much faster than what happened in, in the absence of, of trees. And that's one of the key ways that they're able to cool off the, the air around them. Can you talk a little bit about how, and I don't know whether you, you go here or not, but how trees communicate with each other? Oh, that was going to be my question. <laughs> I'm fascinated. It's so I'm cool totally to read about how they 
you know how they're all they're all connected with all those mycorrhizal fungi and all that stuff that's happening in the soil and they're they're protecting each other and getting food to a sick tree and it's like amazing so there, there's definitely a lot of like romantic literature written about this. And, and so, um, yeah, so, so, so trees, like a lot of plants form these symbiotic relationships with fungi in, in, in the soil. And I always tell my students that this was like the original form of bartering, right? Like fungi are really good at getting nutrients from the soil that the trees need. Trees are really good at creating sugars and carbon substrate that the fungi need. And so they meet up at their roots and the trees hand off carbon, the fungi hand off nutrients and, and everybody benefits. Um, but those fungal networks are not just connected to one tree. So you have multiple trees being connected through that through that network. Um, and there is evidence that different chemical compounds and, and phytohormones can also move through that. I think there that this is not like plant communication is not my area of, of expertise. My understanding is that there's still a bit of controversy about like what's being communicated, any sort of level of intentionality. I think as humans, we want to like personify trees and think about it as like something that that's intentional, whether or not that's that's true, or it's just like stuff moving around and, and one tree's picking up on the condition of another tree. You know, I don't know. There are more concrete cases, like when there's um, a defoliating insect, trees will oftentimes release uh, these hormones, so chemical communication signaling that can move through the air, mm. and and other trees that pick up that signal start to ramp up their production of of defense chemicals, right. and and so as a community, this can help to protect the community because it will slow down and maybe squash that infestation. How much beyond that this sort of intentionality of communication goes, um, I don't know. It's exciting to think about. It makes for really good books to read. And, and I think it's also a really, really difficult thing to, to prove how and how and why it's, 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 it's well, happening. All you have to do is watch Lord of the Rings and you can find out the trees <laughs> talk to each other. They carry people around. Fantastic. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, like within a tree, you know, there's certain responses to the environment that that trigger production of hormones in the roots that then move their way up the tree to the leaves that tell the leaves, okay, you need to stop transpiring now, or you should transpire more. And, and so there's hormones produced in different parts of the plant that move around to different parts of the plant that are influenced by environmental signals. And, and it's very possible that some of those hormones make their way into the mycorrhizomycelia and get to other plants and the plants could be picking up on that and, and, and responding. Um, but whether or not that's intentional um, versus just like, I produce this thing, some stuff moves this way up the trees, some stuff inadvertently moves that way towards the mycorrhizae, and, and that's that, I don't, I don't know, I don't know the yeah. answer to that. Yeah. But it is fascinating to think about. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show and podcast with Patty and Doug Wood. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Andy Reinman, assistant professor in the Advanced Science Research Center of Hunter College. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe and be well. We'll see you next time.